You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. It's your host Alex Marku. Today is January 6th, 2022. So Happy New Year everyone. And I hope all of you had a fun and happy new year and are ready for this upcoming one. Alright, so for today's episode in the investing segment, I'm going to be recapping all of my holdings and then I'll be talking about Loopring's fourth quarter's report. Then I'm going to want to touch upon NFTs just a little bit and I want to warn you about them but also give you some insight onto the potential they have for the future. Then moving on to sports, I'll be gambling on the last week of the NFL which will be week 18. Then after giving you my degenerative picks, I'll be diving into a lesson that's as fun as watching paint dry, which is going to be a lesson on inventory. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the episode. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back apes and retail investors that think alike. My plan for you today on this investing segment will be to talk over Loopring's fourth quarter's report. Then I'm going to be diving into NFTs. I'll let you know two of them that I've actually bought and the process behind it. But more importantly, I'm going to be telling you why these NFTs might have value at some point in the future. And why right now it might actually be smarter for you to stay away from them. I mean I bought two just for shits and giggles. But the real money that can be made on NFTs is actually going to be coming from the creator side, which is going to be the part of NFTs I'm going to be mostly talking about in this episode. Then after some crypto talk, I'll let you know about the watch list I have created for this podcast. And we're going to be looking to start off 2022 strong, but if it isn't started off strong, we're going to look to be diligent throughout the year to eventually build a strong foundation for this portfolio. And now because I'm speaking about the portfolio, let me give you a quick rundown on where the valuations are as of Wednesday night for all of my positions. In my securities department, my valuation is at $439.50. For my cryptocurrency segment, my valuation is $236.07. And then in my gambling section, it's valued at $346.72. This puts my total portfolio valuation at $1,022.29. And given that I've put in $1,200 in this portfolio, $1,000 initially invested, and then the two $100 deposits added at the end of November and December, this means I'm actually down in my portfolio about 14.5%, but I'm not too worried with that because I still have about $240 of cash to play with. And now since it's the beginning of the month, I wanted to update you on all of the holdings I have and where I sit with each one. 
So I'm going to start off with the securities segment and then I'll go into the crypto segment. For my stocks, I have one share of GameStop, which was valued at $129.36 as of Wednesday's close. And personally for me, I'm down 36% in this stock so far. Then I've also got five shares of Computer Share, the ADR version, which were valued at $14.40. And this is the one stock I'm up in, just about 6.5%. I've got 20 shares of SLGG, and the valuation of the stock price was $2.17. And this one is slightly outperforming my GameStop position because I'm only down 33.5%. But those are going to sound like rookie numbers when I give you my options positions. Because I have one option position that's going to be expiring this month. And that's my Cortezyme $45 call and it's going to be expiring on the 21st of this month. Now, if somehow this stock jumps $30, then we can actually make some significant money. But I highly doubt that. And my plan is to just hold on to this and let it expire because realistically no one out there in the market is going to be buying this call, especially if it's expiring in less than three weeks. And when I bought this call, it was about 10 cents per contract. And right now it's valued at about 2 cents per contract. So I'm down about 76% in this position. My other option play I have is my Super League Gaming $7.50 call that's going to be expiring on April 14th of this year. Now I bought it for about 50 cents per contract. And right now the valuation is about 5 cents per contract. So if I believe in it, I would double down. And we might. But based off of when I initially bought, for this position, I'm down about 90%. So my only strategy for this is to hold it. Now the next securities I'll be moving on to are all of my cryptos. I put $50 into both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And both of them, since I've put $50 in, are about down 28%. I also have 320 Dogecoins, and for my portfolio, I'm down 31% from when I initially bought these. Then I've still got my 15 coins of Cardano, and that's down 15% from when I initially bought. I also have 15 coins of Loopring, and that's also down 15% from when I bought. And then my best performing coin right now is BAT, and I've got 15 tokens of it, and it's only down 11%. So that one's my best performing crypto, and it's down 11%. Let's go. And now another currency I have on this Coinbase account is my $51.10 left of cash. And my plan is going to be to withdraw all of this cash out of Coinbase and put it into TD Ameritrade. So by Monday, all of the cash in my Coinbase account is going to be transferred into my TD Ameritrade account. Why? Well, because F Coinbase. And then last but not least is the valuation of my gambling account which is valued at about $346.72. And now for some real talk before I dive into Loopring's fourth quarter's report and some NFTs. I know a lot of the positions I just told you are in the red, and some of them are deep in the red, but this is where a true trader is made. This is where your true trading skills are defined. Are you someone that's going to chase around the market? Are you going to sell your positions when you're down 20%? just to try and chase around so you can make up your losses? Or are you going to be a trader that sticks to your gut when you make a decision about a certain trade? And all of the trades I have made are meant to be long-term holds. Aside from my Cortozyme option call that's expiring this upcoming month, everything I've made is a long-term play. And I've stated this before. So if this thing is down 99%, you know what I'm going to be doing? I'm going to be buying more because I'm only going to be averaging down and when this shit gets back to my initial buy price, now I'll be up a lot more instead of being down 99%.
because investing is a long game and anyone can do it. And I want this podcast to be the proof in the pudding. So if you're wondering, oh, is he going to sell anything? The answer is no. And now I'll be moving on to my next talking point, which is going to be Loop Ring's fourth quarter update and 2021 recap. If you want to look at any of the information that I'm looking at right now, log on to Twitter and then search for Loop Ring's account. And then on January 5th, which for me is today, you, yesterday, or depending on when you're listening to, a lot longer in the past, Loopering has their fourth quarter update and 2020 recap posted, and there's a link so that you can go into their statement. So a quick recap of what Loopering is before I dive into their fourth quarter report is Loopering is a crypto coin, but more importantly, it's a crypto project to decentralize trading. And what Loopring is doing is they're essentially creating a trading platform using decentralized entities and their monies to provide liquidity pools and they're linking Ethereum wallets or any other kind of wallets to their system. This way you can have all the fun regular trading of cryptocurrencies because right now that's what's primarily trading on this exchange without all of these stupid hassle fees because Loopring is the third party. Loopring isn't a business that's for pure profit. Loopring is almost a community, if you will, and it's a community that is built within this very complex blockchain system, all this computer science and coding stuff attached to it, and a lot of money because a lot of people believe in the development of this project. So with that being said, let me dive into what the fourth quarter report and what Loopring's management and team had to say about their 2021 recap. So some of the Sparks notes that I took off of this fourth quarter's report is that the layer 2 for Loopering grew from $40 million to $5.55 billion. So this means that at the beginning of 2021, the layer 2 for Loopering only had about a $40 million valuation or there was only about $40 million worth of trading value on it. And the end of the year, the valuation for this layer 2 on Loopring alone was valued at $5.55 billion. That's like if you transformed $40 to $555. That's a 1,200% increase. Yes, 1,200%. And the reason this layer 2 saw so much growth and blow up is because the ZK rollups provided by Loopering in this trading allowed for layer 2 or L2 to create low gas fees. So this means when you're converting tokens or any currencies amongst each other, you have to pay a gas fee. And typically these gas fees can be very hefty, especially if it's on what's considered layer one. So Loopring is able to provide a more decentralized trading platform because now if you're making a simple trade, you're not gonna be charged a crazy gas fee. So now you have a lot more players that are able to get in this. And I'll do a little bit more research on what layer 1 and layer 2 is so that for the upcoming episodes when I'm talking about crypto, I can define those better. But for now, just bear with me and think of layer 1 as generation 1 and layer 2 as generation 2. Another key indicator I saw on Loopring's fourth quarter report is that they had about $4 billion worth of trading volume on Loopring's layer 2. So this means that there is clear interest in the market like this because $4 billion worth of trading volume is being done on a platform. And if you're confused right now what Loopring Layer 2 is, it's essentially a Coinbase. It quite literally is Coinbase. It's just not called Coinbase because, well, they're not a company. They're a crypto coin. 
their crypto project called Loopring. So how I learned that I hate using Coinbase, I think what my plan is, is going to be to use Loopring Layer 2's system. Now I'm going to be experimenting with it over the weekend and I'll see if there's a way to transfer all of my funds from Coinbase to there. But I know because Coinbase is a bitch, they're going to charge me a hefty fee just to transfer my coins out. But trust me, it's going to be a one-time thing because as soon as we transfer all our coins out of Coinbase, we're done with that dumb company and we're onto a decentralized trading world with Loopring. Because if that $4 billion worth of trading volume on Loopring's Layer 2 isn't enough of an indicator for you that there is actual interest in this, well, Loopring also decided to point out the social growth that they've gotten within their Reddit, Twitter, and Discord channels. They had about 75k new users added throughout the year on Reddit, 100k users on Twitter, and 20k on Discord. So this means that roughly 200,000 new people learned about Loopring this year. And that's just based off of social media feeds. This isn't taking into account of maybe they told a friend or other people who don't use social media know about it. So just start thinking that right now we're still in the early stages of Loopring being a trading platform. And as soon as the common person, even mainstream media realizes this, what do you think is going to happen? Adaptation, baby. So I'm going to try and hop in early and test the waters for you and let you know what it's like to trade crypto on Loopring's Layer 2's trading platform. This weekend I'll mess around with it, and if it seems like a very nice option that doesn't have all these stupid fees Coinbase does, I'll be transferring all my coins over there. And if you wanted to get a good idea of what Loopring's project and goals are for this year, well, management and the team tells you. They said that they've narrowed their focus to the top and releasing major new products and features specific to mass adaptation or adoption. Sorry, I may have said that wrong. Regardless, some examples they point out is that they currently have a web application for mobile phones that is a continued work in progress, but they've released the beta version out for the people to use. So I'm going to be a beta user soon. They're also going to be introducing a Loopring smart wallet, which is going to be similar to Ethereum smart wallets. And you can think of these wallets as just a way for you to store your cryptos or even fiat currency. And on top of that, Loopring has also started adding NFT support. And NFTs is what I'll briefly be talking about after I'm done with this report. And another thing that's cool about Loopring is they have released something called the counterfactual Loopring wallet, which is perfect for the skeptical person out there. Because if you don't trust this whole smart wallet concept, you can try this activity at a zero cost basis, meaning you get to try this all out before you even have to buy anything. It's kind of like paper trading, where you pretend that you're trading in the stock market. Well, this would be like paper walleting, I guess. And what Loopring's big picture plan is with these wallets is so that eventually you can transfer straight up fiat currency, which is that piece of paper that keeps inflating over time, and you can transfer it straight into your wallets. Because right now, you have to convert that fiat currency into Ethereum or some kind of crypto that supports the layer 2. So Loopring is working on a way that you can transfer just your fiat currency instead. But their management clearly reiterates that there's still a long way to go, but they are working hard and they're working to making onboarding a lot easier for everyone. Hence that adoption word. So basically, Loopring's plan is to become a CEX bridge. And what that means is they want to be a centralized bridge for the people to the market. But what's cool is Loopring isn't centralized. 
So Loopring is going to act as a centralized actor, whereas the actual protocol and systems written for Loopring is to act as a decentralized unit. And with all of this craziness going around in the Loopring world, you're able to trade cryptocurrencies for now, we'll see what's in store for the future, without a transaction fee, a lot more securely, and you don't have to go through a middleman, so they're not going to be taking a heftier margin away from your trade. So for now, since that's all I can really feasibly explain to you about Loopring and the protocols they have, that's all I'm going to be running down on their fourth quarter report and the 2021 recap. But if you're interested in the direction that this crypto coin and project is going to be going, I highly recommend you log on to your Twitter, find Loopring's account, and search for their fourth quarter report and 2021 recap. It was published on January 5th, if that helps, if you're listening to this at some point in the future. Or I guess right now. And as I mess around with Loopring's Layer 2 trading platform, I'll be sure to break down every little detail on this podcast, so if you're interested in it, well, you can use me as a little guinea pig for it. And if Loopring seems to be a good deal over this weekend, I'm going to consider transferring all of my coins from Coinbase to this Loopring Layer 2 trading platform by using whatever wallet I create, And then that's how I'll be running this podcast cryptocurrency portfolio from here on out. If Loopring doesn't seem to be the answer, well, I'll just keep all my coins in Coinbase until I find a better option. But I'll still be transferring all of the cash out of that trash-ass company. And now what I want to talk about next really quickly is going to be NFTs. Now, I'm not going to be here to sell you on NFTs or tell you to buy the one NFT I created because I actually recommend that you don't buy it since all I did was use paint to create this, and I made a GIF video out of it. But I put it out there in the world just on the off chance that I make a little bit of money on something stupid. And if you're wondering how you might use this, because who knows, maybe you're an actual artist or you know how to do graphic design stuff really, really well, this might actually be some marketplace for you. Why not test your luck and see if you get lucky with this shit? But what I used was OpenSea. And OpenSea is a website platform, or a trading platform, not really sure. Anyways, you're able to upload or create and buy NFTs on this OpenSea platform. So what I decided to do on the first day of New Year's, after celebrating New Year's of course, was to buy my first NFT. Now I know it's probably not the first thought that goes on in most people's heads, But for whatever reason, I just woke up that day and thought about an NFT and said, heck, why don't I just buy one to see what it's all about? And that's exactly what I did. So I went on to OpenSea, since I've seen it floating around in Reddit before for NFTs, and I've heard it in a conversation. And what do you think I did? I went around and shopped and browsed for NFTs. Now I had a budget, which was just about $100 spending, so I wasn't going to go crazy and buy one of those apes that go for $100,000. Plus, I don't even have that kind of money. But what I can tell you is that searching through some of these NFTs, there's some really good artists out there. Now, is it good enough art to where I would pay, who knows, 20000 or 2 k for it? Probably not, but that's art, and it's subjective. And I know right now people can just troll by saying I can save the image in my phone, but you know, there were a lot of people trolling the internet back in the day, and look at them now, they're using it. But now back to my story on my first NFT purchase. After scrolling for about an hour, looking through what kind of artwork I might want to spend my money on, I found this one playlist, or I guess collection you can call it, 
and the collection I bought from on OpenSea is called Dark Dorm Neighbors. The actual piece I bought is Dark Dorm Neighbor number 1535. And the best way I can describe it is it looks like it's kind of an emo animated character looking off in a direction with a green background and then a strawberry flavored ice cream cone that's splattered on the top of his head. So that's the NFT I decided to spend my hard earned money on and the price of it was at 0.015 Ethereum, which comes out to about $52.91 at the time I bought this NFT. But it doesn't stop there, because there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that enables this kind of trade to happen. You see, I technically bought a picture of this, and I know anyone can just copy the picture, but technically, this picture is stored in my wallet, it's mine, because it's on a blockchain and it's secured somewhere, and I have the original copy of it. And I'm about to make a very drastic comparison right now, but that's almost like if someone had a picture of the Mona Lisa and laughed at Da Vinci because they said, look, I have the same picture on my phone. Yeah, but someone has the original artwork. And I know that's a drastic comparison, but I'm still gonna make it anyways. And for my NFT, even though it says the price was about $52, that's not what I actually wound up spending. You see, I wound up spending about $83 or $85 on this NFT because of the gas fee. And this was my introduction to gas fees. So now in a way, I have experience with it, I can explain it to you in a better way. So what does this gas fee mean? The fixed price on this NFT was 0.015 Ethereum. So this equates to a fiat currency value of $52.91 at the time I placed that trade. But do you remember how I explained that on a blockchain system like Ethereum, there's miners and people behind the scenes actually making sure that the transfer of these services, contracts, and goods get made through this blockchain? Well, that's what this gas fee is. I pay this extra 30-something dollars to enable the transaction to be transferred from this artist's wallet to my wallet. So yes, he spent a lot of time, or who knows if he spent a lot of time, making this NFT. He listed it on OpenSea for about 0.015 Ethereum, which was $52. So when I paid that $52.91, he gets that money, but I also pay 30-something dollars of a gas fee so that some miner who securely transacts that transfer of the NFT to my wallet gets compensated somehow. Now that's a pretty hefty gas fee because I spent $50 on the NFT and $30 on the gas, so I spent about 80 something dollars on this NFT. And I'm assuming that I was using what was considered as a layer one because the gas fees were so expensive. And what layer two technically does is it minimizes the use of these gas fees because, well, I'm not actually entirely sure yet, so when I know, I'll let you know. So why am I telling you about the first story I have of buying my first NFT? Well, because I kind of want you to search for it and buy it off of me for $1,000. I'm joking. I'm actually telling you this because I think NFTs, at some point in the future, okay, and I'm talking maybe five, three years when people start using NFTs in different ways, not just making GIFs and videos, that there's going to be a real market for this and it's not going to be just scam city or the wild wild west where you can lose half of your money within the snap of your fingers. 
because I'm not gonna lie, right now the NFT marketplace is the wild wild west and it is scam city. But it is a real market and it's fairly new. And more than just that, it actually can support great causes because some of the artwork these people put come from real artists. And some of the money these artists get, they actually put into donations or they actually use for good things. So if you're putting your money into good art, which means you have to do your due diligence behind the artist, well then you know your money is going in a great place and you can actually feel good about purchasing NFTs off a marketplace knowing that it's going to someone who's going to do something good with the money. Now I'm not trying to sell you on the NFT marketplace, but I'm trying to at least point the light in an area that's really dark right now because a lot of people can look at it as a scam that certain pictures are going for over a million dollars and people are wondering why and that's why the jokes are being made that you can just copy and save the image because these pictures are going for a million dollars but the supply and demand is certainly out there and it's the lack of supply that's actually creating these drastic demands so for right now i would tell you that if you're kind of weary about this market stay away because the scams look very real I mean, even professionals get scammed because of how real some stuff can look. But as for the future of this NFT marketplace, the potential is unlimited. Because if you're able to start attaching certain services, goods, or anything to these NFTs aside from just having a nice image, then you can actually give the end user that purchases this an actual utility for it. Like, let's say someone purchases a picture of a plant, but the only person that can click play on that plant is the user themselves and then let's say that when they click play they learn all about the plant that's on that picture that would actually be something pretty cool and if you're interested in it then that would give the nft a utility because it is now a learning device and everyone can make fun of you how they can make a copy of that same nft picture you have but guess what no one can learn the same information you have off that nft and that's where i think in the future this has potential you can also maybe start using NFTs as access cards. I don't know, I'm just spitballing, but you can see how the potential for the NFTs is unlimited. As of right now in current standings though, it's the wild wild west, so unless you have a gun strapped on your belt, don't be going out in the country. But I wanted to bring it up because on a personal level, I'll actually be diving into the NFT market from the creator side. Now I'm no artist, but my mom and sister certainly are, so I figure why not have them make some nice art designs and try and sell it online for them? If we're lucky, maybe someone buys one of our art pieces. And I'm not going to try and be a piece of shit that lists my art for $10,000 so someone accidentally hits buy, which I think would be impossible to do. But I'm going to be putting all of the artwork pieces between $2 because that's the minimum allowed and $100. But my main range is going to be $10 to $25. And I'll explain why, as a creator, you can actually make a lot of money in the NFT marketplace and why there's going to be an incentive to be using this marketplace in the future. So because the NFT marketplace right now is just pictures and little gifts, let me compare the NFT marketplace to the art and music industry. Even though I'm not sure there's a lot of NFTs out there that are musical ones, let's just compare it to that marketplace anyways. So. How does the NFT marketplace work from the creator standpoint? Let me walk you through this. 
And what better way than to walk you through the actual NFT I created. So what I did is I decided to make myself a little GIF if you will. And the GIF I wanted to make is of a wine bottle. Now what I did is I drew a simple wine bottle on paint. I copied that image five times and I chose four colors. I alternated what kinds of fill-in colors were for each piece of the bottle and if it makes sense what I've explained so far, I put all five of those pictures together and created a GIF. Essentially, it's the same bottle, but since it's a GIF, every half second, the bottle and the image changes colors. So now if someone were to buy this NFT off of me, which I listed for 0 .00, get ready, 0.0069 Ethereum, which comes out to about $25-ish, give or take, then that stupid glass bottle NFT I made is going to transfer to their wallet. The Ethereum of 0 .0069 worth is going to transfer to my wallet. But the fun doesn't stop there. Because what happens if this fool manages to find someone who wants to buy this piece of shit off of me? And I'm saying it's a piece of shit because it literally took me 10 minutes to make and paint. So it has zero value. I'm saying this so if you're listening to it, and you are scrolling through NFTs and you see this wine bottle and it's $25, save yourself some time and don't buy it. Unless you really wanted to make my day because then I could tell people that someone out there bought my artwork. But back to my point, what if the guy that originally bought it off me, which was $25 and let's call that my IPO price, and he found some other fool out there willing to pay a higher price? Let's just say $100. Now, would it be fair if he got all of the proceeds and profit off that? Because I'm the one that technically put my hard-earned 10 minutes into this paint drawing. So I deserve some kind of proceeds from that. And the NFT marketplace, you can set your terms before you sell your original artwork. So when I made my NFT, the little wine bottle one, I put this price at 0 .0069, but along with it, you also get to put a royalty terms percentage. What this means is that whenever someone sells your artwork in a secondary market, because you were the first primary market letting someone buy this off of you, now they're selling it to other people like, a, like trading stock, which becomes a secondary market. When they sell this, you get to keep whatever percentage you put in. So what I did, and I'm not sure if you can do 100%, you know, which would be really stupid because then no one would buy your stuff. But I put 4.2% just because it makes 420. But you could go up to 10%. I think 10% is what I've seen is the average. So what this means is that when someone else buys that NFT, whoever sold it doesn't get 100% of the earnings. You get 10% or whatever percentage you chose for your NFT kicked back to you. So let me explain it using my wine NFT that I made. So let's say that I sold this NFT for $10 to someone. I initially make $10, he gets my wine bottle. Now, let's say he finds someone and sells it for $100 to him. When that person buys it for $100, Let's say I put my percentage rate at 10%, which looked like the average rate. That means I get $10 from that transactional trade. I didn't trade this NFT. Someone traded it for me. But because I put in my terms 
that whenever there's a secondary trade out there, I want 10% of the earnings, I get $10 kicked to me. And then let's say this guy finds another idiot out there to buy it for $1,000. And I'm sorry, I'm making the NFT marketplace sound really bad and it's not this bad, but just for fun's sake, why not? Let's say that this idiot out there decides to spend $1,000 on this wine bottle. Keep in mind, it took me only 10 minutes in paint to create this. That means that 10% of the proceeds of the $1,000 gets kicked to my wallet. So now let me run through the real numbers. If this ever happens, I'm going to shit my pants. But let me run through this hypothetical. This means that I sold my original artwork for $10 at an IPO price. I got $10 off of the first trade someone found. And then from the second trade, I got $100. This means that my art painting has made me $120 and I only sold it for $10. So why am I comparing this to the music and art industry? Well, I'm no artist, but I'm pretty sure royalty and royalty percentages off of work being sold plays a huge part in that kind of marketplace. And I'm willing to bet, actually no, I'm willing to put my balls on the line that there's always going to be someone in a higher position known as the third-party centralized powers that get to negotiate these artists' terms. You hear it all the time. Artists complaining about how much money they're getting paid compared to the work that they're putting in and compared to all the other money that everyone else is making. Well, it's because these third-party centralized authorities are creating these terms. You think they're going to let the artists themselves choose 10% of the earnings? Get out of here if you're that high thinking that. But when you're creating yourself an NFT, you don't have to rely on a third-party intermediary. You have to rely on a community, a decentralized community, that's willing to put their money in NFTs. So right now, it's the wild, wild west. But I think it has a lot of potential, and I'll be experimenting in the NFT marketplace as a creator. I'm not the creator, but I know my mom and sister certainly are, and maybe we can get a little bit lucky off of them. So as I upload my NFTs and kind of get more into the marketplace, I'll let you know all of the things I learned from the personal standpoint. On this podcast, however, I'm not really going to be diving into NFTs because right now, it's such an early stage, it'd almost be like if I recommended you buying Bitcoin at $1. Sure, sounds like great right now, but when Bitcoin was a dollar, do you think it sounded great? And now before I wrap up the investing segment, I wanted to give you at least a look into the watch list I have created for this apes portfolio. Now, just because the stock is on a watch list doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be buying it, but it means I have my eye on it. And I'm not going to be diving into why I have my eye on it right now in this episode, but as the portfolio goes along, you're certainly going to hear about some of these stocks. And aside from GameStop, ComputerShare, and Super League Gaming, because I already have those securities, some other stocks I have to my watch list is Coca-Cola, Starbucks, McDonald's, Naked, so N-A-K-D, Roblox, Fubo TV, Roku TV, Spotify, and Chegg. So that's my watch list so far on this Apes portfolio. Now the reason I wanted to give you that watch list is just in case you're curious about buying some other stocks I have my eye on and you don't necessarily want to follow this portfolio, you can add those to your watch list and if it starts going down to a certain price point you feel comfortable with, by all means snag them. And the other reason I gave you my watch list is because I'm going to make another play for this Apes portfolio 
and it's going to be on Super League Gaming. So I didn't want to lead you with, I'm going to be making a play on Super League Gaming and have you thinking, does this kid only know about three stocks? Because trust me, I know about a lot more, but right now for this portfolio, I'm trying to build a solid foundation because I'm not going to be selling anything for a long time. With all that said, what my plan is for Super League Gaming is to buy 30 more shares. And when? I'm going to be buying it tomorrow morning. So that's going to be on January 7th between 6.30 and 7 a.m. Pacific time. I'm going to be buying 30 more shares to stock onto this portfolio. The reason being, well, I'm already down about 30% in this position, so I see no harm in averaging down. And since I already bought 20 shares, I'm buying 30 just so I have a nice even number of about 50 shares. So what my plans are for this Apes portfolio is to buy 30 shares tomorrow of Super League Gaming, transfer all of my cash balance from Coinbase to TD Ameritrade, and over the weekend explore Looprings Layer 2 trading platform so I can see if I can start trading cryptos on that instead of using Coinbase. So I hope you were able to learn something today about Looprings fourth quarter and 2021 report, maybe even something about Loopring itself. And I hope that I brought some light to the NFT world, even though I'm putting a heavy caution sign around it. So until next time, all of my apes and retail investors, have a good one and ape out. Welcome back my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to this part of the sports gambling segment. On today's segment, I'm going to quickly recap the college football parlay that won me some money and the one round robin that didn't necessarily win me a lot. And then I'll dive into my week 18 NFL picks. So let me quickly start off with a recap of the two bet slips I had active while I was on my break. And the first one was the bowl season round robin I had created which had Coastal Carolina to win by at least 11, Alabama to win by 14, Tennessee by 5, Georgia by at least 9, Ohio State by 7, North Carolina by 9, and then I chose Oregon and Oklahoma State as underdog money lines. Now for this round robin bet slip, I actually only had 3 of the bets hit, and that was Alabama to win by 14, and Georgia to win by at least 9. I also had Oklahoma State in a nice comeback win against Notre Dame, so they were able to win. But by risking $2 for every parlay created, I risked $56 and I wound up losing $32.61. Luckily for me, two of the selections off of that round robin, I also created a two-team parlay of. You see, I had Alabama to win by at least 14 and Georgia to win by at least eight. And I risked $25 on that parlay. And because it won, I profited $66.25 off of it. And now, I'd like to talk about the NFL Week 18 coming up. Because there's some important games that have serious playoff implications, and of course because it is the last week of the season, there's some games that teams don't really care about and they're not going to try. So I've tried to break apart the games into three segments. Games that matter, games that somewhat matter, and games where there are going to be zero shits given. So for one of the first games that clearly matters, it's going to be the Indianapolis Colts visiting the Jaguars. Now if the Colts are able to win, they punch their ticket into the playoffs. But if they somehow get upset to the Jags, and I saw an NFL memes tweet that the Colts have not been able to beat Jacksonville in Jacksonville since 2000, 
13, I believe. So that's almost 10 straight years that the Colts have lost to the Jags in Jacksonville. And the Colts need to win to punch in their playoff ticket. But if the Jags are able to win, then that helps the Steelers and the Ravens because it keeps their playoff chances alive. If the Jags win and the Steelers win, then the Steelers are somehow in the playoffs, which will seem like a very unlikely scenario, but you never know any given week. So this Colts and Jags game has some serious implications, at least playoff-wise, for both the Steelers and the Ravens. So the Colts and Jaguars game and the Steelers and Ravens game are both games in my book that matter. Because these games aren't played on paper, and even though the Jags are a 15.5 point underdog, until the game is played, they still have a chance to win. And that's what the Steelers and Ravens are going to be thinking when they play their game. The other pair of matchups that matter comes in the NFC. Because there's one more spot left open, and it's up for grabs for the Saints or the Niners. The Niners are more of a team in control of their own destiny because if they win, they're in, whereas the Saints need to win and hope that the Rams can help them out and beat the Niners. So the battle for the last spot in the NFC playoff picture is going to come down with the Saints visiting the Falcons and then the Niners who are going to be visiting the Rams. The scenario here listed, if the Niners win, they get the 6th seed and my Eagles stay at the 7th seed. And if the Saints win and the Niners lose, that has to happen for whatever reason. My Eagles would get bumped to the 6th seed and the Saints would sneak in at the 7th seed. I'm not going to question it because the Eagles made the playoffs, so I'm not here to judge whatever tiebreaker rule there is. And then finally, the truest game that matters, because this is the ultimate definition of win and you're in, is the Chargers and Raiders game, which has been flexed to Sunday night football. And for this game, you've got the Chargers visiting the Raiders, which in a betting world is perfect. You've got the last game of the NFL Week 18 season coming down in Vegas. Bets galore, baby. So those are going to be the games that matter for this Week 18 NFL slate. The Colts visiting the Jags, the Steelers and Ravens, which is really going to be pinned on hoping that the Jags somehow pull a win out of their ass. And then on the NFC side, you've got the Saints visiting the Falcons and the Niners visiting the Rams. And then because the NFL is awesome, we have a win and you're in Sunday night football game between the Chargers and the Raiders. And it's being played in Vegas which is a perfect way to cap off a gambling night for any degenerate out there, which I'm going to put myself in that case. Then you've got some games that somewhat matter because it might alter the positioning of the playoff seeds. And then you've got games where there's zero shits given because they have zero implications. I'm not going to run down through all of them because I'm not going to run down all of the slates. What I wanted to do is give you the games that matter and now I'll be diving into the picks. And I'm going to try and be a little bit smarter with my picks because this is gambling. You can't really be smart or not with it. But I definitely gave these picks a little bit more thought than what I'm used to doing. So let me start off with all of the parlays I've created. For my first parlay, I have the New Orleans Saints spread at minus 4.5 combined with the Rams spread at minus 4.5. If this happens, well, this means that the Eagles are going to be the sixth seed and the Saints sneak into the playoffs. And for this bet slip, I put a $10 risk on it. Now the next parlay I created is one that's essentially going to be praying that the Jags win. As long as the Jags win, 
the rest won't matter, because I've made a splits parlay. And what I mean by that is for the second parlay I have created, I have the Jags money line and the Steelers money line combined. And then because I called it a splits parlay, my third parlay is actually going to be the Jags money line and then the Ravens money line. And by risking $5 on the Steelers and Ravens mixed with the Jags parlays, I'm essentially just rooting for the Jaguars to win. And then whatever happens in the Steelers and Ravens game won't really matter. But if the underdog in that game wins, then I'll just win more money. But I'm creating this bet slip because, well, I'm being a little bit greedy right now and I don't want the Colts to make the playoffs. And the fact that there's a chance they might not, which I didn't even think was possible, would be awesome. Why do I think that'd be awesome? Because the Eagles get the first round pick from the Colts next year. So if they don't make the playoffs, well, it's just a higher pick. So let's go Jags. And then because we're speaking of parlays, I'm going to create my round robin underdogs slate. So for this slate, the underdogs I've chosen is the Eagles, Bears, Giants, Steelers, Bengals, Dolphins, Falcons, and Niners money lines. For the round robin, I specifically set it to create parlays of two, and I risk $2 on every single parlay created. Because there are 28 parlays created on this 8-pick slate, that means $56 were risked for this round-robin bet slip. And now no betting weekend would be complete without having at least one teaser out there. So I decided to make myself a 7-pick team teaser. This means I chose a spread for all of these teams, and I bought 6 points on all of their spreads. And the 7 teams spreads I chose and what the spreads were adjusted for after I bought the 6 points are the Chiefs to win by at least 4, the Jaguars to cover a plus 21.5 point spread. This means the Jaguars are able to lose by 21 points and the bet, at least that bet selection, would hit. I have the Titans to win by at least 5, the Cowboys to win by at least 1, the San Francisco 49ers to cover a plus 10.5 point spread so they can lose by at least 10 points, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to win by at least 2, and then the Steelers to cover a plus 11.5 point spread, so this means they can lose by at least 11. Now I need all of those spreads to hit, and I risk $10 on it. Now my odds are plus 800, so if all of this happens, I would win $80 on $10 risked. And now the gambling weekend wouldn't be complete without me at least placing a wager on that Chargers and Raiders game. After all, it's a win-and-you're-in situation, and it's between the Chargers and the Raiders in Vegas. So this completely spells bet, 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 and that's exactly what I've done. And what I've done is I actually placed one of my first real singles on this betting account. I've decided to place a $25 bet risk on the Raiders' money line. Why? Because at the time I placed it, the Raiders are underdogs. And the game is being played in Vegas. So I'm just going on the story script that the Raiders have had an incredible year and they're going to cap it off with a win to push themselves into the playoffs. And not only are they going to be doing this against the Chargers, a divisional opponent, but they're going to be doing it in the heart of Vegas, the gambling world. So with all these bet slips combined, I'm risking about $126. We'll find out on Monday how well I performed. And if you decide to fade or follow my picks, I hope you wind up making yourself some money. And until next time, you degenerates, ape out.
Hello class, today's lesson is going to be on inventory. And by the end of today, you'll be able to know how inventory gets tracked, the different methods of inventory tracking, and I'll at least apply today's lesson into something that happens with your stocks using these methods that inventory uses. So let's start off with the basics. What is inventory? Well, inventory is the products a company is holding on hand that it uses to produce goods and services. It's also what produces their revenue. So it's an important current asset to keep track of because if you use the inventory turnover rate, you're able to find out how much of the inventory the company is able to sell and how often on a day's basis they actually can get rid of their inventory. So the three key components that make up your inventory is your raw materials, your work in progress, and your finished goods. So for obvious reasons, every single company has a differing view of what inventory is, but it's made up of those three components. So what's your raw material? Well, that's the stuff that a company buys to make the products they need. So for car making companies, well, the metals is the raw material. Then you also have to include your work in progress into the inventory because this is the materials that you're still working on in that time period. So let's say a company has a thousand cars they're working on right now, but they haven't been able to finish it or sell it off or put it in the market. Well, they have to record this as inventory on their balance sheet. Because if you wouldn't have to, then why wouldn't everyone just start classifying all of their inventory as work in progress if they wanted to make it look like the number is lower? And then the final component that gets attached to inventory is the finished good. So this is quite honestly what it says. It's a good that's finished. So if you finish your car or whatever it is your company works on, well, now that's all considered part of your inventory. So combined, your raw materials, work in progress and finished goods makes up all of your inventory. The reason this is important is because it costs money to hold your inventory in storage places. So companies want to make sure they know how much is in each section, your raw material, work in progress, and finished goods, because you're paying holding costs on your finished goods. So you don't want to always be 100% inventory and finished goods, because then that means you're paying 100% holding cost on that inventory. It's not a bad thing to have most of your inventory and raw material in work in progress, but you still have to classify that as inventory so at least your investors know how much you actually have on hand as a company. And you could get paid a lot of money if you know how to manage and move inventory well. Like if you're able to keep inventory holding costs at low amounts because you know when to order and precisely how much to order every single time, well, you could make a lot of money playing some very advanced Tetris. Another neat thing about inventory you can use is you can track it. Because when inventory gets sold, it goes on the income statement and it's known as something called cost of goods sold. So your cost of goods sold is the inventory that was sold for that income statement period. And the reason this can be useful information is because you can figure out as an investor what the inventory turnover ratio is. Because in order to figure that out, you need to figure out what a company's annual cost of goods sold is and divide it by the average inventory. The way you would get your average inventory is just by taking the beginning year balance and the ending year balance, which is something you can find on a balance sheet. So by taking information from an income statement, 
and dividing it by information you found off a balance sheet, you can get yourself an inventory turnover ratio. And looking on Google right now, it says a good inventory turnover ratio is between 5 and 10. The reason is because you're going to have to do 365 divided by this ratio. When you do that, you find out how many days it often takes a company to get rid of their inventory. So if the number is between 5 and 10, it means that the company is able to get rid of their inventory, stock, whatever they're holding on, every 1 to 2 months at least. And that's pretty good. Because the longer the company is holding onto that inventory, the more holding costs they're paying. And those are going to be more operational expenses that's going to be attributed to their cash flow statement. And I wanted to talk about inventory today. One, because it's a really quick and easy topic I can dive into. And two, because there's an important methodology that comes from this. And it might not have been derived from the inventory process, but it definitely gets used a lot. And the method I'm talking about is the FIFO, LIFO, and Weighted Average Method. Because these are three different methods someone can use to track their inventory. And I'm going to try my best to explain an example to you right now. And it might sound very boring for about five minutes because I'm going to be diving into numbers. But I hope you can follow with me. And if you can't, just try and tune in. And at the very end of it, I'll explain how most of this works behind the scenes in a bigger picture format. So you're going to get the nuanced data points right now. And at the very end of this five minute marking or however long it takes me to talk about it, I'll be sure to explain the bigger picture of what's happening when companies choose FIFO and LIFO methods during inflationary and deflationary periods. So stick around if you want to hear some fun stuff. So now let me try and use a very basic and textbook example I just made up on the spot to try and explain this inventory method process. I'm going to pretend that in the year 2021, we had some company named and their name is SPA. Why not? Spa. So this spa company decided on January 1st to buy 10 units of something at $10. On March 1st, they sold 5 units. On May 1st, they bought 20 units at $20. On October 1st, they sold 10 units. On November 1st, they bought 5 units at $30. And then December 1st, they sold 10 units. Now don't worry, you don't have to memorize all of that information at all. Just keep listening. Because I'm going to be breaking down how LIFO and FIFO would have tracked these inventory methods. And also notice how when I said that we were selling our units, I didn't say at what price we sold them. Because in terms of tracking just inventory, the price doesn't matter. If you want to see what you're making profit margin wise, then it does. And now let me use the FIFO method to explain how the inventory would be tracked for this company's spa had they made all of these transactions like I just laid out for you. Starting in January 1st, they would just record inventory at 10 units at $100. So the inventory on their balance sheet would say $100 January 1st. Now we move on to March 1st, where I said we sold 5 units. So we would take 10 of the units we bought at $10 and subtract 5 of those. So this would now put the inventory valuation at $50. Now for May 1st, I said I bought 20 units at $20. So now our inventory is actually a little bit trickier, because we have 5 units left over at $10, and we also have to add the 20 units we just bought at $20 a piece. 
So that would put our inventory valuation at May at $450. Because we've got $50 worth of the units valued at $10 a piece and 400 new ones that were valued at $20. Now are you ready to hear how FIFO actually works? And I was going to say C before I reminded myself that this is a podcast. So on October 1st, I said that we sold 10 units. I chose 10 on purpose. Because according to FIFO, we have to sell the first units we buy first. Because FIFO stands for first in, first out. So this means the first units that come in are the first units to go out. So on October 1st, when I said I sold 10 units, that means we first have to get rid of the 5 units that we still have valued at $10 a pop, and then we could get rid of the 5 units, at least 5 units, that are valued at $20 a pop. This would now put the October inventory at $300. And because I wanted to add more data points and talk way longer on this segment, I decided for November 1st, SPA was going to buy 5 units at $30 a pop. So now this puts our inventory for November, 15 units at $20 a pop, and then the 5 units we just bought at $30 a pop. This puts our inventory valuation back at $450. And then in December when we decide to sell 10 units, we're going to have to sell the inventory we bought at $20. And because we have 15 of those units, we're not going to even touch a single unit that we bought at $30 a piece for. So this means our December inventory balance is going to contain 5 units valued at $20 a pop, and then the 5 units valued at $30 a pop. This means we have 10 units at the end of December at a valuation of $250. And now how about for the opposite side of the equation, where we've got our LIFO, which stands for last in, first out. It might sound confusing, but I'm going to run through the exact same FIFO scenario I did, and you might see how things run differently. Our January 1st is going to be exactly the same. We buy 10 units at $10 a pop, so it's valued at $100. For March, everything stays the same as well because now we sell 5 units, and we have those 10 units. And then it's going to sound like a broken record, but for May, everything looks the same as well, because we have our 5 units at $10, and the 20 units we bought at $20. So everything up until May looks exactly the same as the FIFO method. Here is where things get different, because October 1st we sell those 10 units, but now we're using the LIFO method. You see, according to the inventory we have in May, we have 5 units at $10 a pop, which we bought in January, and then we have 20 units at $20 a pop. So those were the last units we bought, the $20 ones. And we have 20 units of those. So we can only get rid of 10 out of those 20 units. You see how we didn't touch those 5 units we bought at $10 a pop? Because those were bought first. The 20 units were bought last. So now the valuation of our inventory in October after selling 10 units is $250. How does that differ from our FIFO method? Well in our FIFO method the valuation was $300. So it's about a $50 difference. And then on November 1st when SPA buys 5 more units at $30 a pop, it's going to put the inventory at a valuation of $400. And for the FIFO method it was $450. So still just the $50 difference, because we did nothing that actually alters the method. All we did was buy more units. It wouldn't be until December, where SPA decides to sell 10 units, that we would see LIFO yet again take its change. 
because at the end of November, the inventory we would have had in our account would have been 5 units at $10 a piece, 10 units at $20 a piece, and then 5 units at $30 a piece. Okay, so now try and bear with me on this last little bit because we're in the home stretch now. If we sold 10 units in December 1st and we're using the LIFO method, that means we first have to sell the 5 units we bought at $30 a piece, and then we've still got the 5 units as a remainder. So we would take that 5 units, and what's the last thing we bought? The ones at $20 a piece. How many units do we have in that section? 10. So we would take 5 away from that. Now the ending inventory for December would be 5 units valued at the $10 mark, and 5 units at the $20 mark. So now our inventory for the ending year is going to be valued at $150. What's the one for FIFO? It's $250. So there's about a $100 difference. So now you see if you're comparing certain companies in the same industry, but they're using different inventory methods, are you really comparing apples to apples? This is where things like investing can be really tricky and why people use Excel spreadsheets to create models. Now I'm not going to lie, I'm not there yet. And if I ever do get that nerdy, I'm going to try and find a way to automate it all because it'd be really boring and a pain in my ass to constantly update it manually. And then you've got your weighted average cost for this methodology. And all this does is you just take the total cost of your inventory and divide it by your total inventory units. And then, well, there you have your cost for the inventory. I won't really run through the actual scenario I used because I think, one, it'd be really cruel of me to. And also because the weighted average one typically just rests between the LIFO and FIFO method. And if you were able to follow along through all of that textbook example I literally just said to you, I have to applaud you because you're an auditory learner. And I for one am not. I learn things through observing. That means seeing. I also learn things through doing. I don't know if that's like kinesthetiology or something like that. But anyways, I learn things a lot more through observing. So if while I was explaining my little textbook example, you were able to nod your head because you could see these things, I applaud you. But the reason I gave you that whole data set and data point is so I could explain this next point, which is even more important, and it's the actual big picture of what happens when you choose FIFO or LIFO as a company. Because as you noticed, the ending balance in our inventory was different by $100. And this might not mean much right now in this little scenario, but what if it's off by $100 million? And as an investor, if you're comparing companies that you believe are in the same sector, you would like to know if the inventory method is at least used the same because then you're at least able to compare apples to apples and make an informative decision. And from using my little nitty gritty data point and data set, which you don't really even have to understand right now, I can explain to you what FIFO and LIFO inventory methods does. Because in inflationary price periods, that means the price of the units are going up, which is why I chose 10, 20, and $30 intervals. This means the price kept going up every $10. When the prices are inflationary, FIFO is gonna record the highest inventory amount possible. Whereas LIFO is gonna record the lowest. The reason this is, is because you're getting rid of the inventory you bought first. So when you're buying inventory earlier in the year at a cheaper price and you get rid of that first, what you're holding on your books is all of the inventory you recently bought at a higher price point. 
So this is why during inflationary price periods, FIFO records the highest inventory amount, whereas LIFO is going to record the least. Because in LIFO, when you get rid of the inventory that costs you the most, on your books, you're holding inventory that you bought for at a cheaper rate compared to what the market rate is right now. And in times of deflationary periods, it's vice versa. So that means if the units cost $30 at the beginning of the year, was $20 in the middle of the year, and $10 by the end of the year, well, then that would be amazing for you as a company. And then depending on which method you use of inventory tracking, you might also get another cherry on top. Not only are your expenses for your items less, but your inventory might also be technically devalued. So why would I talk about inventory in a lesson today? Because it ties to the markets. And like I said, all of these lessons aren't meant to be fun and happy. A lot of it's meant to be boring. This shit's not fun. It's informative and it can help you make a lot of money if you know what you're doing with the information given to you. But it is my goal to at least put some light on it and make it a slightly more fun topic because I know what I'm trying to preach to you is to come sit in a room with me and watch paint dry. And as soon as it's close to drying, I dump another bucket on the wall. And before I end this quick lesson on inventory, I wanted to at least give you a real life application where FIFO, LIFO, and weighted average is used. And what better one to give you than the actual thing I like preaching about, the stock market. Because when you buy your stocks on a broker, they're actually implementing this FIFO, LIFO, and weighted average method. Everything is just behind the scenes. So if you're not sure what's happening, well, you wouldn't even know that your account is set up on a FIFO trading method. This means that on a FIFO method, the first stocks you buy, when you hit sell in that batch order, they're going to be the first ones to sell. And you can actually change this in your brokerage account settings. So if you want to start trading your stocks in a LIFO fashion, you absolutely can. Now, I'm not here to tell you which method is best or not, but I'll at least give you an example in a situation where it might be better to use FIFO and at least one where it might be better to use LIFO. Otherwise, I would have just been a useless elementary school, middle school, high school, college, or any other teacher out there just giving you some BS work, explaining some shit, and then collecting a paycheck and putting my feet up on the desk. And that's not what I'm going to do because I'm not collecting a paycheck and I want to spread information. And that wasn't a direct shot at all the teachers out there, but that was a direct shot at a majority of the teachers out there. And you know who you are because the real teachers have real impact and students can tell. But now back to my quick stock talk. Here's an example of where you might want to use the LIFO trading method for a certain stock. Let's say you're buying a stock that you think is severely undervalued, like let's say $10, $20 right now, and you continue to buy this stock while it's trading in the $10 to $20 range. Now, if you didn't know your account settings in your brokerage system, you would be set on a FIFO basis. So now let's say the stock you've been buying at $10 to $20 has a magical run and goes all the way up to $200. Well, what if you wanted to buy more because you said the show goes on and the stock isn't done yet? So you buy at $200. Cool. Well, what happens now if you want to hit sell? Well, if you hit sell, it's going to be selling the first batch orders you made around the $10 to $20 range until it gets to a certain stock amount where you can finally sell those $200 range shares you bought for. So now that I've set you up with that scenario, 
Let me move you onto this one. Let's say that same stock jumps to $500. Now ask yourself this. Would you want to sell the shares you bought at $10 to $20 a piece at $500? Or do you just want to maybe make 2x your money by selling the shares you bought at $200? This way, you can keep the shares you bought at $10. Because what's the likelihood you'll ever be able to buy these shares again at that price? Unless there's a huge crash on it and your company becomes a Ponzi scheme or something? It's very rare. So if you want to hold on to those shares you initially bought in this company because you had faith in them, guess what? You can do so. Set your trading activity to LIFO, and this way when you sell your shares, you're selling everything you bought last. So that means those shares you bought around the 200 mark. Now if you liquidate your whole position, you're eventually going to reach those 10 and $20 shares. But that's a situation where LIFO might actually work in your favor. Because if you were able to hold on to your shares in the 10 to 20 range when it was $200, you're definitely going to be able to hold on to it when it's $500. But what if you want to make a quick little profit on the last transactions you made? Maybe you want to play around with your money. By all means, you can do so. And now you know the different kinds of LIFO and FIFO methods you can actually apply to your stock trading accounts. And that's a situation where using LIFO might actually help you. Now let's do a quick rewind and pretend that this stock never jumped to my 500 price prediction and instead went from $200 to $100. Well, what would you do then? Because you bought at the $10 to $20 range and the $200 range. You actually have an opportunity to do two things. Do you want to carry over a stock loss for that year or do you want a stock gain? Because if you're set on FIFO method, when you sell your stocks, What's actually going to be happening tax implication wise is you're selling the stocks you first bought at the $10 to $20 range. And because the stock is at $100 when you hit sell, you're actually making a gain. But if you had your LIFO method, well you would sell the stock you bought for $200. So now you are at a loss and you can carry that loss on your taxes. So tax wise, this is how you can also use LIFO and FIFO to manipulate the stock trading you're doing. And manipulate isn't a bad word if you're doing something like that. Where manipulate can be a bad word is if, I don't know, a money maker, hedge fund, and um, mainstream media all decide to collaborate and uh, manipulate something. But that doesn't happen, right? And that's my two cents, how manipulation actually isn't a bad thing. It's what you use manipulation for. Because if you're manipulating whether you have a tax gain or a tax loss, that's being smart. If you're manipulating about 90% of retail traders because you think they're dumb money, well, I think that's highly unethical. Very hard to prove, but the signs have been there. And one last point I want to make, not about the unethical shit that probably happens behind the scenes, but back to that stock talk I was having about how brokers use your FIFO and LIFO method, they also use the weighted average method to display your current position holdings. So when you buy these positions at $10 range, 20, 300, 400, you know what I mean? When you buy at different price ranges, the actual information displayed on your screen is a weighted average representation of it. So a stock company uses LIFO, FIFO, and weighted average. This kind of method isn't applied to just inventory. And if you can see how different companies use this, well, maybe you can start manipulating 
the information for your good. Because imagine if you were comparing two car companies and you realize one of them uses LIFO inventory method and the other uses FIFO. Well, now you can do two things. You can do the hard mundane work of doing a model and creating everything to make the financial statement look like it's apples to apples, or conceptually, you can understand what's going on behind the inventory amounts, and that way you'll get a little bit of a clear indication on how the companies operate and what their business model is. So I hope you were able to take something important from this lesson, and even though it was on something as simple as inventory, I really hope you learned something new today. So if you've made it this far into the lesson and episode, I just want to thank you, say love you, and until next time, ape out. If you ain't first, you're last, and if you ain't last, you're waiting.